From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 155 of the Diz Unplugged, Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm not doing too shabby. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well. All, all recovered. Still have a bit of a sore throat, but I am doing okay. So anyway, so how was your Independence Day weekend? It wasn't uh, too bad. So it was actually really rainy here in Orlando for mm-hmm. most of the day. So I uh, basically just sat inside and, uh, well, I... For the most part, I, I cooked on the the stove top instead of outside because of the rain and and Kylie fell asleep the night before when we were watching Hamilton, so we rewatched mm-hmm. the second half of that and then basically didn't do anything for the rest of the day after that. Just kind of watched some of like the fireworks at Washington D.C. on CNN and a uh, little little random stuff like that. I watched some of my old mm-hmm. fireworks videos as well too to. To remember back when there was fireworks at Walt Disney World over the Fourth of July mm-hmm. weekend, and uh, yeah, so it pretty pretty easy going. So I can't complain Good. too much. Good, yeah. I didn't have my normal fireworks spectacular with friends over because you know physical distancing and all that. But uh, the families across on the other side of our court they um, had fireworks, so I. They, I, they asked me to bring out my Disney music because I always play Disney music every year. So I played um, the loop from Main Street, Disneyland Main Street from the 70s from my side of the court. I have speakers that I, I play little portable ones. And then they shot off their fireworks. And so that was fun. But, oh, my gosh, the number of fireworks the, of the... Uh, illegal kind were everywhere just everywhere it was like a war zone here they because i you know they california like shut down almost all their fireworks displays so i guess people decided they were going to have their own i don't know it was quite amazing when you know all the news you know all the news stations that have you know their these cameras sitting on a flagpole somewhere on top of a tall building when they showed sacramento an aerial view. Oh my gosh, there were fireworks everywhere, you know, at night. Our town had fireworks on July 3rd, so that was nice. But uh, but anyway. Yeah, I was. But no, I over. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I was telling Kylie kind of a similar thing. Uh, well, I wasn't telling her, but while it was happening, I was complaining to her, saying, like, this is getting insane how many people around us are shooting off fireworks because. We, you know, our neighborhood, actually, we have a ton of trees around, and I guess they they were a little bit damp because of, of the rain that happened earlier, so it wasn't something to be nervous about, but, uh, you know, we live in a townhouse, so our, like, 
we have our a detached garage that basically lines up with all these other ones and then there's an alleyway and then another row of houses behind us with the same setup so people are sitting in the alleyway lighting off fireworks i'm like you're you're shooting off fireworks right over all of our houses if there's a fire that starts it's just gonna it's gonna go all the way up and down the street and just turn into a really bad day i'm like how why is this happening and this never happens before and then that's when she stopped me and she's just like you have to remember you always you being me in this case always insist on being at epcot on the 4th of july to watch their fireworks so then it it completely sunk in i've never been home to know if this happens and i just felt terrible (laughs) for my dogs like if this happens every year they have to go through this nightmare while we're sitting in the Epcot parking lot trying to get home. Yeah. I think people went a little... I, I think because uh, uh, the fireworks were banned, uh, that people, they still want to celebrate. And they decided, I don't know where they get these fireworks <laughs> around here, but they got them because it, it was much more pronounced this year. Yeah. And ours... I think than in the past. Ours are legal, so it makes sense where they get them, but it's it was like when we lived in Pennsylvania, and I mean, my family still does, but, uh, you know, everyone would drive over to Ohio, where it was legal, and then bring them back over to Pennsylvania and shoot them off, and of course, no yeah. officers actually care. Yeah. They must have gone in Nevada or somewhere where where, you know, you can get the ones... We have legal, safe and sane fireworks here, but you know these were these were skyrockets yeah. these were professional grade that i would have seen in a disney park fireworks that were going off around us but anyway so but um so that was fun i i spent 5 hours you know on the phone with our local internet provider because um those of you who have been listening for a while know i have had since february an ongoing issue with my home theater system and I was having a friend come over on Sunday to watch Hamilton on Disney Plus, and the home theater system went out on Friday, and so or Saturday, one of the so, and Geek Squad blamed my my internet and cable providers. So we worked for five hours, and anyway, and it, it turned out it. it didn't appear to be their fault, which I thought it wasn't, and it looked like there was this. Um, digital cable audio cable that i guess i guess the sound travels through light in this little cable i i had no idea and the cable though has to be it can't have any kinks or anything in it and when the squad of geeks because i've had many here um when they first set this up they didn't take off the um wire wraps you know those ties on it, they just pulled out the two ends, and it put one into the soundbar and one into the TV. So the rest of it was still coiled, and they said it. They think that that's my my cable provider said because he said he had this with his father's television. Said that he thinks that's the issue. There, it's kinked up, and the light's not getting through to connect the sound so i cut them off very carefully and um, stretched out the audio that line that cable i've had no problems since then so knock on wood it's working so anyway 
Yeah, but but so I rewatched the John Adams miniseries on HBO Max, which is have you seen that? I have ever? watched bits and pieces of it. I have never actually sat down and made the proper time for it. But it and there's no reason why I haven't because I actually I love Paul Giamatti and I. I love the founding mm-hmm. fathers. Not, I don't love them. I love the story, and I, I know there's a lot of mm-hmm. issues with what our founding fathers did, but and how they, uh, how how they acted. But at the same time, too, it's it's you know it's the story of the United States, and you still we still love it. Right. We we celebrate. We celebrate their accomplishments and the great things they did. And yes, like everyone else, there were issues and things that they had to work through. And this miniseries brings that out really well about the whole struggle with slavery. And it really came down to either we were going to have a country or we weren't. And they had to capitulate on that, but they still spent 50 years trying to unravel it before like they were all dead (laughs) you know that's how complex an issue it was that finally led to a civil war you know but it's not like they um gave up on it so and so so this isn't something the miniseries avoids but but and you see the anguish that they went through and and the adams were appalled by it and, you know, when, when they go to the White House, it wasn't called the White House then, of course, but when they go to the, um, you know, the, the, oh, I forget what they called it, the, the House of Government or whatever, and it's being built by slaves. And Abigail Adams, there should be a tribute to her. What an amazing woman. Um, they, and they said, uh, and she said, no good can come out of this place that's built by slaves and um i thought yeah well you know what she may have been prophetic may have taken a little while but uh, i don't know no i'm being i'm being harsh but it's it's an excellent series really good and i cannot watch paul giamatti in anything else because he was so superb in this he's john adams to me you know i mean he just he just outdid himself in this, and I've seen him in many other things because I think he's a very good actor. And um, and Carol Lindley, that was Abigail Adams, is everybody in this is stupendous. So yeah, if you ever get the time to watch this, it's really good, and it's 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 even more meaningful, I think, today. And, and we're coming close. What it's going to be our two hundred forty fifth anniversary next year, and so um, it's a good time to sit down and watch it. And then, like you, I watched um, pre recorded fireworks spectaculars you know disney parks released one and i watched that now i watched some that you recorded from the, on the diz and all of that so it was fun and then the next day yeah, i watched hamilton on disney plus i did not pre-listen to the audio the, the soundtrack because i just wanted to hear it fresh and i thought okay if i need to put on the closed captions i will i didn't need to it is recorded so well and filmed so well i think i only missed maybe a couple of words in it. I just thought it was so well done. I really enjoyed it, you know, and um, then I started reading up on it about staging, and I didn't know there were different styles of rap, because I know nothing about rap, and um, how they use different forms of it for different 
figures, you know, like like George Washington's was the rap they used was very style a different a certain style to reflect the type of person he was and Lafayette's was very different his was more of a a very fast-paced one um to reflect his personality and all I mean it was it was really brilliant and then then how the staging was designed to you know reflect a lot of different things um it, it was excellent I just enjoyed it so much oh yeah no I it's so, I hate I I hate that it gets a lot of burden on it by saying, oh, it's Lin-Manuel Miranda, so it's all rapping. The show isn't even all rapping. It's not, it's, Yeah, exactly. It's, it's it's the easiest way to say it is that it is like a hip-hop rap musical because a lot of the music mm-hmm. is in that style. But at the same time, too, like, it's there's a lot of just... It's a lot of just traditional Broadway singing throughout the entire mm-hmm. show as well, too. Sometimes it's a little faster than others, but I don't think it's enough to really give it the the title of being like, oh, this yeah. is all of a sudden hip hop. And so it's yeah. it really is. I love watching the progressions of the songs. And then when they start taking the motifs from different songs and placing them into the different styles as well, too. It's very it's like it's why mm-hmm. so many people really really hate andrew lloyd weber because as soon as he finds that motif that he can just use over and over and over again in a show he does it to Mm -hmm. the point that it becomes an earworm and you're singing it and it's the exact same thing that hamilton does i mean it just it repeats a lot of those same musical moments without you really picking up on it and becomes so catchy but it's it is cool to see how the different performers each have their own their own bright spot like for me i the the star of you know lin-manuel miranda is hamilton and aaron burr are the two stars of the show as well as aaron burr's well aaron burr has all the good songs (laughs) yeah i the first time i listened to it the first thing that i stepped away with was saying that like okay it's not it's called hamilton but aaron burr is the star but i also think eliza's the star mm-hmm. but my favorite character is david diggs as uh, lafayette and jefferson like anytime he's on the stage uh-huh. yeah he's oh, he is just otherworldly but chris he's a lot of energy yeah but even in he's a ton of energy and then christopher jackson as washington is just he's stoic and the mm-hmm. way he belts his songs out it's just like it, listening to it doesn't doesn't do it justice. It's it's a lot better to actually see it on on Disney Plus. Yeah, and oh, I love it so much. I agree. Well, and then King, and then we talk about different musical styles. Even like King George, you know, they use the British Invasion style of music from the '60s in order to show how he really didn't fit mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. to the colonies or anything. He was just out of place, but he was brilliant. Oh yeah, Jonathan yeah. Groff is no, no wonder. No wonder he's so good. No wonder he was so good as Kristoff in in, um, in Frozen. Yeah, and <laughs> the the great thing about that role is, I mean, people have talked about it. It's easy to notice. He's only on stage for like eight minutes of the entire show, but my my friend mm-hmm. Nick, who was in the touring company and on on broadway as well too for a while he was saying that like in terms of 
in terms of prominence in the musical, it's um, King George is he's paid like a principal cast member is. So even though Hmm. as Aaron Burr, you're out on the stage almost the entire time during the show, if not in the foreground, then the background standing Mm -hmm. that, you know, it's King George is considered just as important. And he just walks out for a couple minutes at a time, a couple times, and then goes back in. And so it's like one of the most coveted roles that you could try to land because it's so, so simple. Yeah, well, apparently, you know, he he was saying how, you know, when he comes out, he has that interesting walk, puts the way he puts one foot in front of the other. He said he had to do that because the crown was so heavy. And and then the the cape that he was wearing is the only way he could walk, oh. keep his balance and keep that crown on his head. Was that in the special <laughs> feature that so, they released along with it? I um, I don't know if that was in a special feature or if it was just in some of the other digging around that I did. I did watch most of the special feature. I still have a little bit. It's long, so I still have more to do. My friend had to leave, so I um, I turned it off. I have to get back to gotcha. it. I think we watched about two-thirds of it. Okay. Anyway, so anyway, it was very good. So I enjoyed it. I'm sure I watched it again, probably with the closed captions on, just to see if... Um, I missed anything. Uh, anyway, speaking of films, of course, I, I predicted it. They moved Mulan's opening day. Mm-hmm. I'm st- I'm starting to wonder if um, we're even going to have films in 2020. I so are they t- or is it just is this going to be a wash? I, I think we will, but I'm not. Uh, the more I'm thinking about it, the more I'm. I think I'm going to have to kind of forego it. So I've I've still as much as people have sent me all these tips on keeping my mask um, in the right position and keeping my glasses from fogging, I can't get anything except for two masks to actually work well, so my glasses don't fog, mm-hmm. and so I can't. There, there's no way I can go and sit in a theater with a mask on where my my glasses are just going to constantly keep fogging up and. I'm also, on the other side of that, I'm also not going to go and sit in a theater with other people without wearing a mask. And I hope that no one else would go in a theater and wear a mask the same way. So, I... Oh, they will. They will. The people are walking around here. You know, masks are mandatory here. They they only cover their mouth. They don't cover their nose. And I don't... I would hope that people would respect me as much as I respect them and want to wear a mask to protect them in case I have anything. I would hope that they do the same for me, but no, I... They don't. Well, they don't. I still hope, though. <laughs> I'm sorry. But with, with the movie theater, I just... It's, it's one of those things I want to, but until it's a world where I can sit in a theater or until they can finally make a mask or give me a real solution that doesn't make my glasses fog, I can't I can't justify spending money to constantly be taking my glasses off to to clean them so I can see yeah. the screen. So I'm just going to have to to stick to home, which is sad because I mean, I I was averaging somewhere between 5 and 10 movies a month when I was when there was stuff out there mm-hmm. that I was interested in seeing. So to go from that to yeah. nothing is it's it's tough on me. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have a drive-in not far from here, but they're, they're you know they're not 
showing many first-run films. Um, they've, they've shown some independent films and stuff, but uh, it's mostly, you know, special double bills and things like that. Yeah. So I haven't gone. Plus, I don't want to stay up that we, late. We have a drive-in about uh, maybe 50 minutes away from where Kylie and I live, and a lot of my friends have gone to it. I, Where I grew up in Pennsylvania, uh, in Butler, we had an awesome drive-in that was very, very close to us that was like, it was your old-fashioned drive-in. When we first started going, it was three screens, uh, one giant one in the middle that always played the most popular brand new movie, and then two side ones. And it just, it continued to be popular as I got older to the point that I think they... They had either five or seven screens at its like highest point. So oh, like wow. it all just shoved in anywhere they could fit space. They would put a screen, even if it was only like twenty cars could line up to watch it. That's that's what they would do. But it was that classic like you pull into a complete dirt lot, and you can either set your blanket out front and sit in the grass with your radio. You can sit in the car with. With the radio, mm-hmm. all the poles were still up. They didn't have the stereos attached anymore, but they were still up. And so it kind of had that style. And, like, looking at the one that they have in Florida that's close to us, it's like you pull into a parking lot and there's a screen setting up. And I'm like, eh, it's just not the same when I grew up that's, going yeah. to, like, a real one. Yeah. This is ours is I think more like that one, the Florida one. We have three screens. They were going to tear it down years ago and build a, a shopping mall, but then uh, the rise of Amazon um, nixed that one. So now they've actually poured money into the drive-in, fixing it up on old digital and all that kind of stuff, and um, so it's become it's become popular again. Yeah, that's. So it saved it. Amazon saved the drive-in. Uh, A lot of drive-ins closed because they didn't have the money to make the upgrade to digital projectors. And as soon as they stopped showing films, mm-hmm. unless they were Christopher Nolan movies, they weren't actually distributed on on film anymore. And so a lot of drive-ins had to shutter because they couldn't they couldn't afford the new projectors. So it's it's cool that the ones that have yeah. survived are able to to thrive right now because of it so it's it's wild that we'll look back on this in years and be like remember when drive-ins became a thing again after nearly going extinct yeah 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 so thinking of delays of course disneyland's reopening date was delayed meaning this i don't know when they're going to celebrate their 65th anniversary and destination d was delayed so now it means the 20 the D23 Expo, Destination D, and the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World, and the 65th, I guess, of Disneyland, they're all going to be in the same year. That's that's crazy. I, I mean, in my opinion, I wish, I, I don't think it's going to happen, but I would love to see D23 do what, what Comic-Con's doing and do a, a virtual uh, a virtual expo this year and have destination D mm-hmm. being held that way because I mean it's it's something that would work with that event anyways besides the merchandising in it we're just mm-hmm. all sitting around watching panels anyways why not open that up to all gold members yeah. to just be able to watch from home except you have the f- you have the floor I mean the vendors and 
you know, all that kind of stuff and all the different, you know, all the different areas of the business of the company, the Disney company there and all that. But yeah, I would love that. I think that would work for Destination D, most definitely. Yeah, it's... I don't know how well it would work for the oh, expo. Not for the expo. Well, it, it would work. Yeah, the expo needs oh, for destination D. Exactly. Yeah. The expo needs to stay expo. Mm-hmm. That's that is a that's that's something that they can always cancel the expo next year if this is still happening. But with destination D, mm-hmm. they could still pull together an event this year where they can make sure that people are staying mm-hmm. distanced and everyone's staying safe, and they can still do an event that's that can be held over a weekend where you still get that same information out uh, even if they make d23 gold members or even just general pay for you know 50 bucks and you have access to all the live streams over the weekend even that's like mm-hmm. something that i would i would love to do I, it's it's better in person oh but, i would i'd absolutely yeah. do it yeah yeah. I wonder if they're testing the waters because if you notice they're starting to release um, some of the expo panels on Twitter and stuff from last year. Yeah, I, they've and there's some of the ones I wanted to go to and missed. <laughs> yeah, they they've been, you know, sometimes they they release some full panels as soon as the expo ends and others they they have been releasing mm-hmm. like that just sporadically and I you know, yeah. I think look at how the the adventures through the Walt Disney Archives release went that weekend. It was mm-hmm. it was smooth and easy. Mm-hmm. I had no problem streaming it, and I had no problem signing. Neither up. did I. I know other people did. Oh, okay, that's but, a shame. Um, no, I didn't have any problems with it. But, yeah, yeah, it's anyway. Well, the well, we'll see what they do. So, but it'll be a big year next year <laughs> if all this happens. Um, of course, the big news when we were on um, sort of on a hiatus, Splash Mountain. We're going to say goodbye to Br'er Rabbit, Br'er Bear, Br'er Fox, and boy, those those um, America Sings figures can't get a break. <laughs> and um, Princess and the Frog is moving in, and I, I I am torn about this for a number of reasons. I love Princess and the Frog, but I love um, the stories. Uh, yeah, I love the story of Splash Mountain, and I would love Princess and the Frog to have an attraction. I hate for first. There, are, when have you ever seen a mountain in a bayou? I, I hate that it's going to be squeezed in into an in, into a show building that wasn't built mm-hmm. for it. So that's sort of why I'm torn because you know I've always said Princess and the Frog is my favorite modern animated film. So I'm. So, so I'm thrilled that it's getting an attraction. I love the music. It's a great story. I'm not too sure what this story is going to be, um, you know, and how they're going to rework this to work with Splash Mountain. I would love it, though, if they extended it somehow and made it all covered with Spanish moss and all this kind of thing. And then they ousted old Pooh Bear and, I don't know, just somehow made it more... I don't know, somehow themed to more of a bayou setting. But I don't know what, I don't know what would go in over, over there. You know, bring back the country bears. I don't know. I mean, but give them only one theater and I think they would be popular again. I said, you know, a lot of people have said, well, in Walt Disney World, they want a, 
a, a beignet restaurant now here, so that way it can you know it can ac- accurately represent the story mm-hmm. of Princess and the Frog. And I was talking to um, you know some people who go back with us years and years and years might remember Sean, uh, who used to be a part of the Diz, mm-hmm. Diz Unplugged, and we were talking about this, and I was like, how great would it be if they got rid of Winnie the Pooh in Disneyland and because you know you ride in the the little honeycombs how great would it be if they transformed all those vehicles to beignets and they made a dark ride of Princess and the Frog as well that went along with whatever they're replacing with Splash Mountain but it was like all about the the quest for beignets or something and you just have yeah (laughs) of John Goodman like leading you on this quest to to get more beignets and i know it's completely ridiculous and really dumb but i was just laughing at the idea of yeah. riding around in a big beignet vehicle but i've always had an issue as you know i've spoken about song of the south many times i've always had an issue with the disingenuousness of bob Iger and others where they have this moral superiority. I've always felt Bob Iger was sort of smug. If you ever read his book, have you read his book, Lessons in Leadership I've Learned Along the Way? The subtitle should be, And Why I'm Smarter Than Everyone Else. Um, he, he just comes across as very smug to me, and even in his smile. And I always thought, yeah, okay, we're, you're going to lock up Song of the South, but boy, you're going to mine it. For every penny you can, by by exploiting the animated part of it, by having the attraction, although he wasn't around for that when it was first built, and having all the plushes and all this other merchandise, but no, 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 we're we're not going to show Song of the South. We're not going to own up to our responsibility that we created this film, and just sort of do what they've done with Gone with the Wind put it in historical context, explain when it was made, why it was made, and own up to the responsibility the studio has for this film. Instead of pretending, oh, don't look here, we made this film, but look, we have these stuffed animals, and we have this great attraction, and we have this cool song, zippity Doodah, sing it with me now. Um, I if, they're, if they want to be... I, I was raised by Jesuits, so which means your world and moral philosophy has to be consistent. If you're going to lock up Song of the South, then that means you got to lock up Zippity Doodah and everything else associated with that film. Yeah. And and if indeed if they are being honest about this, we should never hear another note of Zippity Doodah or anything else again. I think it's irresponsible on Disney's part to do that but um, that's what they should do I, I I still don't know about everything all I know the only thing I truly do know is I I will say I thought I would have an emotional response to the news about Splash Mountain being being removed but I I explained it on another show when that it came out I was just kind of like it just nothing really affected me with it It was just like yeah it's it's actually the right move it's it's the right move to to make it something else and and I don't I I 
I wish I felt strongly about something, but it's as I said, it's there's so much craziness that's been happening in the world. It seems silly in a way to be upset about an attraction, and I will never, I will never blame anyone that says that they're sad about it going away or whatever. It's I, I get how we make emotional attachments to this stuff that truly is it's it's rides it's metal it's plastic it's it's cloth it's felt it's fur we make attachments to all this stuff through the memories and being there with the people we love and sometimes you can't control what you attach to but i don't know i i I was just the place i was in when the news came out was just i i was in this complete other state where it just didn't it didn't mm-hmm. really impact me and it's i think i think i'm just so ready for the I, i'm so ready to be on the other side of all of this that i i realize mm-hmm. that everything's going there's stuff that socially needs to change there's stuff that like physically for all our health should change and i'm just i'm not i'm not going to start worrying about stuff because no one can change memories and that that stuff will still be there and i just think about the future and with princess and the frog i can only imagine the the kids who are watching it at home right now on disney plus that are going to go and experience princess of the frog and you know be like this this is the movie that i love and i'm seeing it right here like it's just there's so many people who are going to make all these brand new memories with it that i'm i'm really excited for for the future with it oh i agree and there are going to be just as many people too who are going to find fault with it because that's just where we're at right now but anyway but um i don't know i just i I have very mixed feelings on it which i think i've expressed but um if they would just make the splash a little less i'd probably ride the attraction more (laughs) <laughs> I don't like walking around all day with I don't like walking around all day with wet underwear. Anyway, so um oh, couple things we've been talking about Disney Plus. Uh we are going to be doing episodes on a couple of things that you might want to watch on Disney Plus before we embark on those episodes and that is they finally they released Man in Space and Mars and Beyond on Disney Plus and we will be talking about those in a few weeks. They also there's another episode in that Man in Space series that for some reason they didn't release. We're going to be talking about that too. We're going to talk about the whole series. But you you I know some of you like to watch things in advance that we're going to talk about. So talk so definitely watch these. And um you know in the next couple of weeks. So if you haven't already Anyway, and uh, update on surgery. It went well. Uh, I don't know. I haven't got, not gotten a biopsy back yet, but I seem to be talking <laughs> and everything. So thank you, everybody who sent me uh, messages of encouragement and positive thoughts, prayers, and pixie dust. They definitely um, were very helpful. So I have one more surgery left. And um, by the time the show airs, I would have had my pre-op meeting with my surgeon so um so hopefully all of that will have gone well so all right well 
As you know, the COVID-19 pandemic has caused um, federal, state, and local governments to close places of public gatherings in an effort to curb the spread of the virus. And in an effort to continue their mission, the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco's historic Presidio launched a series of virtual events called Happily Ever After Talks. These are one-hour events in which they interview someone in the Disney community, and for the first half, they interview them, and then they take questions from participants who have tuned in in the second half. Uh, The event recordings are available um, 48 hours to participants and and then on the museum website. And then they're available to museum members through a museum, um, to a member's portal on the museum website so that we can go back and um, watch them whenever we want. We'll have a link to the museum's website in our show notes. And in this episode, I'm going to share what I've learned from some of these talks. And I'm going to be reading quickly from my, or reading um, from my quickly handwritten notes. I'm hoping that I'm going to be able to read my scribbles here. So I hope you enjoy these, um, for those of you who haven't um, been able to attend these. So I'm going to start out with, with someone who's a friend of the show, Bob Gurr, who's been on. And he uh, he has contributed to over 100 attraction designs for Disney parks, which is remarkable. So, um, oh, and Bob um, demoed a new drink he has called, because, you know, he had the Gertini that he was famous for with the, you know, Bombay Sapphire and all that. And um, he now, uh, he had the Gertini. He had a hurricane glass and he filled three quarters of it with cubed ice. Then um, he put in like a couple inches or so of what he called the Naked Mighty Mango. I have no idea what that is. And pineapple juice. And then he put in, then he says you could put in vodka, rum, whatever you want or nothing you you can just make this you know uh, what they call a virgin drink which he claims that's what he was doing i believe the naked mighty mango Mm -hmm. is the uh naked smoothies that you can get in a grocery store there's a a mango smoothie one so just to help people you can usually find those in your refrigerated uh section next to like the refrigerated orange juice and kombucha and uh other other refrigerated juices. Okay. Oh, thank you. I'm so disappointed that my um, my grocery store doesn't sell Pog anymore. So, because I like yeah. that. Anyway, okay. Two and then two in. Then he had a, a spear, uh, you know, for fruit. So he had um, a pineapple spears. He had a mango ball. He had kiwi. He had a cherry. But basically, he says he just puts on whatever's in his refrigerator because I saw him somewhere else I can't remember where and he had his Gertini he had the goofiest stuff on that stick I mean it's stuff that you wouldn't even think would go with a drink so it's whatever he can put on it he puts in there anyway it, M sandwich yeah yeah it, it's it was very refreshing it sounds like it sounds like a good summer drink so one of the questions, the first question was, why has Disneyland, why does he think Disneyland has been as successful as it has been? And Bob said Walt was always looking for something new to tell his stories. And um, he th- thought of Disneyland, I have to put on my glasses for this, when I'm working, when I have the computer 
working on the computer. I don't have my glasses, but now I need them. So he thought of Disneyland as an actual movie uh, with um, Walt's uh, splash of storytelling and showmanship. And and Walt taught everyone uh, a, a, around him about storytelling and showmanship. And there were there were other ideas for the Utopia vehicles. Walt drew up a list in 1952 of what he wanted in a park, and that included bumper cars. And it was it sort of it morphed into a Utopia of freeway driving, and that became Autopia. And Bob designed a sports car, and it looked like it, it looked sort of like an amusement park car, but. Um, it, I should say it looked real and not like an amusement park car. And then Walt, and Walt loved it, but then Walt floated the idea of a Greyhound bus with a driver who could drive little kids on Utopia. But instead of having a Greyhound on it, it would have a little Dashhund, a little Dachshund dog on it. And in, in, um, but then it turned out that this would not be practical. So, so that is a good trivia question somewhere for you. Uh, he was asked about the Lincoln figure, and Bob said a team worked on the figure for a year, and they just it didn't work. And so Bob, Walt brought Bob in and said, "Bobby, I want this to have twice as many movement and half the weight." And he said, "It's just like Walt. He had a problem, and he let you go at it." So Bob thought of Lincoln as a plane because Bob was restoring a glider at the time and he drew up the plans for the figure in 90 days. And Bob said he never got good at anything because each project never existed before. So he always started at ground zero and everything he did was brand new. And then they, they talked about Disney and Imagineering series and the comments Bob got about it, because remember he was on there taking you into the inner sanctum of the Matterhorn. Um, he said they were mainly from people having no idea how much work it is to be an Imagineer. <laughs> so, and people asked him, what was Walt like? And he said, Walt was a regular guy. He was just bubbling with ideas. He'd come and visit you and see what you're working on. And then his eyebrow would go up and he'd say, say, have you ever thought of? And then he would launch into his thought. And But Bob said he was just an ordinary man. And, and that's pretty much what everybody said about Walt. Walt chose what went into his park, and Walt, uh, Walt uh, Bob was asked what was his favorite project, and he said it was the fire engine. Uh, Walt always wanted a fire engine, he thought, after seeing um, Ward Kimball's fire engine that he had in his backyard. So, of course, Ward had a full, giant fire engine. Um, Everyone thinks things are hard to do, but Bob saw them as a challenge and was excited about figuring out how to do it and what is the best course of action to create what was needed. Now, the, uh, somebody asked him, is the Matterhorn faster on one side? Because, you know, this is a great debate 
by us Disneylanders is one side faster than the other. And Bob said, yes, one side does seem faster than the other, but it depends on the time of day, um, the, the thickness of the oil, and the weight of the people um, uh, are, are all factors in the speed. Now, Walt knew how far to go to get people working on a project and if a project was possible. So Bob said a lot of young Imagineers today get too excited and try to top each other. And a project ends up getting taken out because it couldn't be resolved. And during the shelter in place, that we're in right now, Bob designed a new electronic mobility device or scooter. And apparently it will soon be for rent in Orlando and um, through a major scooter rental company. Isn't that fascinating? That is. Yeah. I mean, he never stops. Oh, I mean, and it's and, when you stop, and you he, get bored. <laughs> Yeah, well, and you lose your sharpness. Exactly. So, I mean, it's part of why Dick Van Dyke is still still going strong. And, I mean, we didn't talk about it in the intro, and we, we shouldn't harp on, like, anything too sad, but like, Carl Reiner finally uh, oh, passing yeah. away, like, super sad. But, like, he and Mel Brooks would still get together multiple times a week and sit mm-hmm. down and watch movies and sharp all the way up till the end. So... It's it's all about continuing working and just going strong. I know, I know. Gosh, I remember him when I was little when he was on Dick Van Dyke yeah. with the running gag about his toupees. <laughs> I remember. Um, now he was asked about his thoughts about Rise of the Resistance and and the ride vehicles because you know that's Bob's forte, and he said, you know, they always try to top the previous ride, and it gets too complex. When it works, it's great, but when it doesn't, it's a problem. And I remember him saying something um, very similar about the Luigi's, um, what were they called? Those those flying tires, whatever they were. He said the same issue. He said similar thing about that before it became the little dancing cars. Anyway, well, in 1959, he said that he um, worked on all five attractions that opened, and he said they all worked. (laughs) Today's Imagineers don't always think through how it's going to work. And, but Bob said he never had his own idea. It was always Walt saying, Bobby, we're thinking of doing... And then he'd say what it was, and Bob would figure out how to do it. And Bob would see it through and how it would all work. So, And he said, um, roll, people asked, did Bob have any inspirations? And he said, um, Rolly Crump was an inspiration and helped him see as a designer to see the aesthetic side of, of projects and of design. Now, when Disneyland opened, Bob was there seven days a week from 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. to repair attractions. And he learned so much about machinery and to respect what the machine does not want to do, which helped him design better machines that lasted 20 years or more. He, He just kept getting these subtle little digs in, you know, about current Imagineers and current um 
attractions. I mean, think of the last version of the Disneyland monorail and all the problems we had with it. He was very um, proud of the ones he designed. I'll say proud. Um, th- th- that did not have as many problems. Um, of course, all the guests are always asked, what is their favorite part of the Walt Disney Museum? Walt Disney Family Museum. And for Bob, it's the first gallery with all the family artifacts. And in there, Walt tells his own story. And uh, and it's, it's nothing but recordings of Walt throughout that gallery. And Bob choked up. It's Whenever Bob talks about Walt, especially his passing, Bob gets very emotional, and he's always upbeat. But even after all this time, um, Walt's passing affects Bob, and Bob misses Walt, which is remarkable. You know, I mean, I think it shows their closeness, but also shows what a remarkable man Walt Disney was and the impact that he had on those around him. So, and and that's that's what I learned from the um, Bob Gurr talk. Much more was said, but I've I've hung out with Bob at Disneyland, and I, I know that sounds like I'm bragging. You know, it sort of is, and um, and I've um, and I've heard him speak many times. We've had him on the show many times, and so I only wrote down new stuff. I didn't really write down the things that I already heard. And I was surprised you actually had new stuff to say. I mean, I know I know we tried to make that the goal the last time that we had everyone who listens to our show asking Bob the questions to try to find stuff that Bob hasn't ever heard before, new new sides to his story. And I mean, you just you just unloaded a little bit there that that hadn't really been out there before, at least not not with what I've seen or paid attention to. So uh, it, yeah. it makes me jealous that I wasn't there to hear it <laughs> firsthand from from his actual mouth. Yeah, and well, I think it shows uh, how well the interviewers were from the museum and also the guests who were listening in. Um, they had some good questions yeah. and all that because, you know, Bob sometimes sticks to a script and I, I think this kind of format where it, it, he's one of the few people that will just sit down and say, um, just ask me what you want. He's he's one of the few people we've interviewed. This is going backstage a bit where he doesn't request a, a list of potential questions in advance. And I and I always as a courtesy offer it. And um, even if they don't ask, um, because that's part of my preparation and. Because Bob says, <laughs> Bob says, if you have to give me the question in in advance, it means I don't know my stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, yeah, and you've heard you've heard him say that. So anyway, so I I think the, the venue where you can just throw questions out at him, but he doesn't tolerate, um, oh gosh, what silly questions or questions that are not well thought out. So you do have to think carefully about your questions before you share them yep. with Bob. Yep. So, anyway, so just a word of advice for all of you out there when you, if you do have an opportunity to chat with Bob is um, think, think carefully about what you want to ask him. So anyway, all right. The next one is I, I picked, I, I chose this one because 
I think this is somebody we both really like. This is he ha- he's he he's the brains behind my favorite Muppet, and this is um, Dave Goltz. Hopefully, I got his name right. I wrote it out phonetically <laughs> doing it, and they started out showing a clip of Gonzo um, doing um, "Dancing by Myself." Have you ever seen that clip? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's cute. I really like it. I love Gonzo. Well, Dave said that the evolution of Gonzo, he was developed in three phases over 20 years. The first phase of Gonzo was he was conceived as a loser who performs bad acts and thinks they're high art, and he was very shy and inhibited. And maybe that's the Gonzo that we got on The Muppet Show way back in the day. Yeah. The second phase was the exuberant phase. And this was the new Gonzo with the wide eyes. So he looked, always looked really excited. And then the third phase was Muppet's Christmas Carol. And that's the third part of his personality because in that, they were able to bring out his soulfulness. Soulfulness. So, um, and uh, he said that uh, Gonzo was always attracted to women, but when he was auditioning dancing chickens, uh, some could, none of them could dance. So, I, I guess Dave ad libs, well, Gonzo ad libbed, uh, we'll call you nice legs. And, <laughs> um, and apparently, Jim Henson cracked up that Gonzo would be attracted to chickens. And that's how Camilla started. Oh. And, um, yeah, yeah. And, um, and so Gonzo evolved as Dave's... Dave evolved personally. So, which is interesting. How, uh, how closely he identified with Gonzo. Oh, uh, 100%. So, that, so, it's not related to this one that you did, but they mm-hmm. did... Um, they they did a live stream on Jim Henson's uh, the anniversary of Jim Henson's uh, passing away. Him and Frank Oz and Bill Beretta was a part of it, and then one other performer I can't remember her name. And when they asked Dave to do an answer in Gonzo's voice, like he did it in his normal voice, and it was just like one slight. Uh, pitch off from his regular speaking voice and that's when it like really uh-huh. sunk in like he is he's gonzo like it, gonzo gonzo is just a slight change in voice whereas uh, a lot of other you know and that's that's normal for a lot of uh, a lot of voiceover artists and puppeteers for for uh, maybe a voice here and there but in his sense, like his his signature character, it it basically has become him over time, and that's that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, like you know, yeah, the three phases of Gonzo are basically the three phases of Dave's life, mm-hmm. apparently. So it's fascinating. So they got into Fraggle Rock, and he said he thought it was constraining at first because they had to role model um, positive behavior for children, but he then grew into it. And of the show, Jim Henson first said, I want to create a show that will stop war. Now, even though I was a little old for Fraggle Rock, I watched it because, first of all, I was fascinated by, you know, the, the... puppetry and all that but it had good storylines 
in it. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah. Now, Dave said he always wanted to be an Imagineer, interestingly, but he didn't get to do that. So, but he did get to work on Muppet Vision 3D. And he said that they used huge cameras that sounded like lawnmowers. And he said the sound kept throwing off the performers. Um, he said that they spent five and a half hours trying to get the Bean Bunny water skiing after um, he's, you know, he's knocked into the water. So, And then um, they talked about after Jim Henson passed, he said that uh, Jim was very kind and worked hard. And everyone thought that Jim was indestructible. Uh, he, Dave had just flown back to his home in California and got a call from Frank Oz saying that Jim wasn't expected to live. So he returned to New York and Jim's son flew in from London and asked the puppeteers what they thought was the future of the Muppets. Um, his, because Jim's spirit drove them and the Muppet Christmas Carol was the most emblematic of their work and of Jim's spirit. And he says that that's their deepest film and that he can't watch it without crying. Mm. I know we've talked about that, that for, for both of us, that's one of our, um, you know, must watch films during the Christmas holiday. Oh, it's, I, it's one of my favorite movies any time of the year. I mean, it's, it's, it's easily in my top ten, if not in my top five, of all-around movies. It's just done so well. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. And, and they, they keep the heart of Dickens' story and his message in that one, unlike <laughs> the Jim Carrey Disney Christmas Carol, <laughs> where I felt it lacked heart and soulfulness completely. Everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm going to watch that again someday. Anyway, uh, they said that uh, he said that Jim was gently persuasive and he wanted everyone to have fun and that he was an amazing guy to work for. And Jim felt that everyone should follow your passion and enjoy what you're doing. Uh, And you may make money at it or not. And that's Dave's um, philosophy as well. And then he was asked, what is his favorite part of the Walt Disney Family Museum? And did any part of Walt's life influence him? And Dave said he grew up one and a half miles from the Walt Disney Studio. And he wanted someday to, um, to uh, you know, write shows. And, and so he watched um, the Mickey Mouse Club and he saw Disneyland open and he wanted to work or I should say he watched the Sunday night shows and he watched you know watched the Mickey Mouse Club too and he saw Disneyland open and he wanted to work for the company until he got realistic <laughs> <laughs> so and then uh, and then when he's at the Walt Disney Family Museum he sees the parallel between Walt Disney and Jim Henson they both took an art form and they revolutionized it and they surrounded themselves with a group of people to create their dreams and they had a tight-knit company so so it's interesting and so it it does make sense then that these companies would come together yeah i think personally it's just too bad that now the disney company 
doesn't seem to know what to do with the Muppets. Um, he said, um, then they were asked about some of the films the Muppets made. And he said the Muppets playing parts in classic literature is very polarizing. Um, some love it and some hate it. I, I did refrain from asking any questions about their appearance in Liberty Square. <laughs> in uh, in Walt Disney World, and of course that took every ounce of um, restraint I had. Um, at the Jim Henson Memorial, uh, he talked about that, and at the workshop they made thousands of butterflies, and there were five thousand in the cathedral. Five thousand people in the cathedral had these butterflies, and and I think he showed a clip of it, and it, and it was an expression of Jim's spirit. these butterflies and he said that the strength of the puppetry medium is that it's real and that they can go on the today show or whatever show versus digital animation that doesn't happen in real time and it's perfect you know the mediums are very different and he talked a little about the labyrinth the film um, he didn't interact with David Bowie too much. Um, he listens to the album all the time. But he said, you know, it was unfortunate that the Labyrinth came out at the same time as E.T. so that it had to compete with that film. So it didn't do well at the box office. Yeah. But, you know, and then they, so when they saw, you know, that it was losing out to E.T., he said, we all thought E.T. had only one puppet and we had to make everything. <laughs> So, I mean, and uh, but they said, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have not seen the labyrinth since it came out. I've got to rewatch that. That's on my list of films to rewatch. It's Kylie's favorite movie, so I watch it. I mean, I own multiple copies on multiple formats, and I watch it probably three or four times a year. So it's oh wow, it, it's it's good. It's not it, I. Okay. I, I like parts of Dark Crystal better, but uh, she she loves the labyrinth, so I'm not going to argue with that. <laughs> okay, okay. Now, they said that Jim was um, primarily visual, and uh, then they got into the new Dark Crystal series because that was running at the time of this talk, and he played um, Buffy Buffy the Fizz Gig, and it was a character in the film. But in the original film, but it's a species in the series, and you know. And then he was asked, "What keeps? Um, what? What? How does he keep doing the same characters for years, fresh?" And he said, um, "Moving back and forth between the series, like Fraggle Rock and The Muppet Show, you know." He said, "Each character is a different part of your psyche, and you and you." It, you you then can it gives vent to um, different parts of yourself, and so that's what keeps it new. But and this is what you are saying, Craig. He feels closer to Gonzo, who is free thinking. He never makes a mistake in his mind, unlike Bunsen Honeydew, whom he also mm-hmm. does, who is more of a construct. So he has to think Bunsen Honeydew through. So. Um, so then he was asked, well, what was Gonzo's most memorable guest star interaction? And he said he can't pick one, but 
on the Muppet Show, he remembers an interaction with Peter Sellers when he was on the show. And he said it was in the first or second season. And the production cycle for a show is six or seven weeks. So it's three weeks... Three weeks in, they contact the guest star to ask if there's anything that they've always wanted to do. And then they try to work it into the show. So they wrote a scene where Kermit talks to Peter Sellers, and it says that Peter Sellers plays himself. And Peter Sellers says he didn't know how to do that. And what they learned is that Peter Sellers Sellers completely lived through his character's isn't that interesting? That, is. that, that really is. But I, I guess it. it yeah. I, I can see it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so um, he was asked what what happens if they have multiple characters in a scene. So he says they perform the most important character in the scene, and then someone else does the other, mm-hmm. and then the voice may have been pre-recorded and then it's rolled in during the scene and, and then added in as part of post-production. Yeah, it's and that's the that's the cool part about it is that you know, uh, I love watching the scenes when there's like 20 30 Muppets all on the screen at the same time because you know, it, you have to assume that 15 of them are performed by one main performer that that you know and love and then there's all these other ones in the background and so there's all these these puppeteers that are just you know it's, they're just trying to crack it and hope that one day that that they're they're a bigger part of all of it and like i i don't i never really had that appreciation but actually kylie's uh one of kylie's aunts was uh one of the puppeteers on muppets from space and got to to be a part of the ensemble with it all and it it just gave me a better appreciation for all you know there's a lot of people who want to break into puppeteering and just like animation and a lot of them you'll never hear their names and you'll never know who they are but uh it's i can only imagine how they feel when they get to take over a character in the background because their main performer is doing something else and even for that short bit they have the chance to be gonzo or wolf or or one of the major players just because there's mm-hmm. so many other characters in it. Yeah, and and I really appreciated this a whole lot more, not only because this was um Gonzo, you know, my favorite, but because um you know, I, when Carol and I went on the backstage magic Adventures by Disney trip with, you know, Dreams Unlimited and the Diz, you know, you go to the old Charlie Chaplin studio, which is now the Muppets studio, Jim Henson's studio, and you get to see some of the Muppets and other creations that they have made over the years. And they were working on something that was being released um, at the time we got to see them create and work on a character and so it was just cool to you know have been there and seen that and i think we met jim henson's son we we got to go in his office and then i think he passed through and just said hey hi yeah and um anyway so um anyway so so it's cool that you know you get to go to that studio a a plug but you get to go to that studio and that tour and um it's so many stars have walked there. Yes. You know, from old Hollywood to new Hollywood. 
Oh, it's it's absolutely incredible. And I've had I the only way to get on it is basically to be about a, a part of that tour or you have to know someone who works there. Those are basically the only two ways you get there unless there's some special event. Someone buys the space for a wedding or something. And I've been there on the Adventures by Disney trips. I've been lucky enough to be there once as a special guest. And it's just it's it's remarkable uh the it's not where they have the creature shop where they're building the creatures that they're still making to this day for anything that's under the henson umbrella not muppets but henson but at the same time too it's just there is there's an energy there that I that I feel anytime I'm on that lot the same way I feel about the studios more than like you know you and I have both been lucky enough to be to Imagineering and it's an incredible place but there is there's an energy on those old lots that you just can't replicate in in other places and so it's it's wonderful it's astounding yeah it is it is it's also amazing how small it is mm-hmm. with the amount of things to get done there <laughs> All right, we're going to wrap up with another friend of the show, and that is Don Hahn. And this is a really interesting one. First of all, he's always so entertaining. I know we were talking um, before the show, Craig, but we both watched the D23 um, Archives documentary that Don hosted. And that was just so good. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed it. It was it was a nice uh, it was a nice just enjoyable watch nothing nothing uh-huh. mind blowing for the most part but uh, it, part of his charisma and personality is what what made the entire thing and I was just smitten over his obsession with Disneyland corn dogs which of course I also have <laughs> yes I know I thought of you when I when I saw that yeah and uh, yeah and a lot of the stuff we'd seen either at, the, at Destination D or the D23 Expo. But there are still a lot of other interesting uh, things to see, too. And again, meeting other people mm-hmm. who are in the archives and seeing the other departments of the archives, That some of which we, again, if you go on the tours that we just talked about, either with D23, the studio tour, or Backstage Magic, you do learn about those some of those departments. But it was really interesting to see them and all that. It was very clever how they traveled with the the bed knob. It, it absolutely was. <laughs> I thought that was cute. <laughs> anyway, all right. Well, they started out asking him how did he start at the Walt Disney Studio and how did he become a producer? Well, he said he was always a Disney geek and he watched the TV show. He went to Disneyland and he pointed out that it was $6.50 a day and it was 50 cents for parking. And at 20 years old, he got a job in the morgue and he delivered artwork to the animators um, like Frank Thomas and the other nine old men. And this became his school. And he asked a lot of questions and he was impressed with their generosity of spirit. And he got a job with Wooly Reitherman and he enjoyed it. And he just sucked up all the knowledge he could. And Don said that he himself, he was an okay animator, but he knew he wouldn't be great. So he migrated over to production management on the Black Cauldron. (laughs) And then he became a producer 
but he never aspired to be a producer, but he just gradually went in that direction. You know, he was a producer on Roger Rabbit. And he, he, and it was just sort of a gradual thing. Um, and then it came up, uh, Waking Sleeping Beauty, a documentary we have talked about many times, sort of the, the fall, rise and fall again and rise again at Disney Animation. And, um, and it's, it's celebrating its 10th anniversary. So that's on Disney Plus. If you all haven't seen it or want to rewatch it, it's there. Um, he said that he's, you know, he said making an animated film is a process of rewrites and redoing and redoing even more, which is what makes um, animation so strong. And, you know, he got the call after Roger Rabbit to work on Beauty and the Beast. And he was told it had been in production for years and he needed to crack the nut. You know, so so talk about pressure. Uh, so he ultimately, ultimately everything got thrown out and he got Alan Menken and Howard Ashman on the project and they have a gift for storytelling and how to make songs a part of the storytelling. And then Kurt Wise and Gary Truesdale were brought in as directors and he said so... That, and, and he had a great story team. And Kurt Wise and Gary Truesdale, I'll talk about them in another one of these um, episodes that I do of Happily Ever After Hours, because they were they did a session. So Don, Don has most recently produced and directed a documentary on Howard Ashman called Howard. And he feels he hosts everything to Howard Ashman. He learned, and, and by in doing the documentary, he learned he really didn't know him. And it's, the documentary is about the struggle of being an artist and what Howard went through. And it's, it's instructive in his craft and how knowledgeable, you know, Howard is. And it, you know, Howard had a very tragic ending to his life by contracting HIV/AIDS um, late in life and passing away. But he led a very joyful life, which he um, experienced through his music. And then, uh, and I believe he said that they are signing the final contract, or they had just signed the final contract with Disney Plus for Howard to appear on you know on that service so I'm really looking forward to that because I have heard nothing but excellent reviews yeah. about this documentary I am ready for it after about so. hearing about it for so so long I know and it was going to make the whole circuit you know the documentary you know the whole uh, circuit but then the COVID came up and I think that just mm-hmm. you know cancelled everything so um, anyway, then they went into Disney Nature, you know, which the Disney Nature series, which, you know, Don helped spearhead and he pro- produced a number of those. Um, he said when Walt developed the True Life Adventures, there was no such thing and there was no television. So um, Buena Vista Distribution came out of this because Walt and Roy decided after Seal Island that they didn't need other studios distributing their films. And they, they, um, they, he said in, in preparing a Disney nature film, they go out with an outline 
and they hope for the best. But they have strict rules about not manipulating the animals. And I've heard him at the Walt Disney Family Museum talk several times about his various Disney nature films and how sometimes they're filming and filming and filming and they're just waiting for a story to come out of it. And sometimes very, very late in the whole process does an event happen or something happens that suddenly there's the story. Sometimes it happens in the beginning, like it did with the uh, monkey one where a, a monkey becomes orphan mm-hmm. early on. And they think, and this was going to be their star, was this family, and then suddenly it's orphaned. But then what was unheard of and never happened before um, was that the monkey was adopted by an older male in the tribe. And then there's, it was a completely different story for them because they thought they were going to have to scrap everything. And um, so, so you just never know what you're going to get in this, which is interesting that, you know, a lot of people think it's all orchestrated and all that. And, you know, it's not. So um, so they, they, they have strict rules not to manipulate the animals. So Don is involved with the story. So he sits at the BBC Nature team and they look at all the footage. And that's when they try to build a story. And he said they don't call the films documentaries because they're not scientific. He said they're more of a nar- narrative um, telling of a story. Um, he said now, and he says, and now we see them everywhere, like on National Geographic, because Walt was the first one to put them on television. Yeah. So he's producing documentaries. Yeah, yeah. And of course, like we talked about, was it last week? It seems like most of the new content that's going on Disney Plus is their National Geographic um, you know, channel. Exactly. Yeah. That's getting put on there. Yeah, which but, I'm loving. Yeah, oh yeah, and it's the nice part is that it's there is a story encapsulated in these specials and and it mm-hmm. that's I I love that. It's it I love that you know, it it can be made up to a certain extent because obviously we can't figure out what animals are doing saying everything, but at the same time it's still they they find that twist that you can you can relate to it and you can feel like mm-hmm. yeah i do understand what they're going through it's it's uh it's why we get addicted to these nature documentaries so easily <laughs> yeah yeah i agree yeah and you know a lot of times you see things that we'd never see anywhere else like you know when he did the what is it born in china he said that was the first time that like snow leopards had been uh filmed out in that area ever and that the Chinese people like they knew nothing about them and and it, and that film inspired them to start um, you know uh, you know a program to rescue you know and, and to preserve and protect the snow leopards so so it's amazing what a good nature film can do for the planet mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so um so um, when he's uh, so he's producing documentaries, you know he's done one on Tyrus Wong, a very good one, and on Howard. I mean, he he does this because he wants to tell stories of people who don't have a voice and who have a story that is dramatic from real life. 
And so putting together a documentary, he said, is like putting together an animated film. You put together pieces. Now with animation, you put you you put it together with sequences. And so he enjoys finding interviews and photos to tell the story. So he was asked why is the Walt Disney Family Museum important to him? And he believes the culture of the Walt Disney Studio is that there's a story to tell and that the people who worked for Walt rallied around him and they went that extra mile and tried to do the impossible and his people followed Walt anywhere. And Don is fascinated by this. Um, People have said it's it's because of Walt was such a great storyteller and paid attention to detail. And that Walt really believed in people and listened to their ideas and used them to the greater good. So, you know, Ron Miller and Diane Disney Miller, um, the founders, they tell the story of Walt. That's the foundation of the museum. So tell the story of Walt his and his studio and that it's an inspiring story for all of us. So um, then they asked about working with Ron Miller. Because he, he was there during the Ron Miller era at the studio. He said Ron was a humble guy. He was not appointed chief executive on the first day and that he had to work his way up through the ranks. Um, when he and Card Walker took over leadership after Walt's passing, uh, he said Ron admitted he didn't know anything about animation and he learned about it. He knew Disney had the change and he took risks with films like Tron and Splash and a new label like Touchstone Pictures. And he brought in new animators who were taught by the Nine Old Men. And he, and he also said that they needed, that Ron said they needed to hire more women in animation. And, um, and of Diane Disney Miller, he said that she had an enthusiasm for the museum and its story. So Don produced a Christmas film for the sto- for the museum that plays every year, and it's it's a wonderful film, and it's you know and it's it's all about Walt Disney during the Christmas season, and he suggested to Diane that she narrate it, but she suggested Ju- Julie Andrews and other great actresses, but Don said he thought people would like to hear from you, Diane. Um, they went to Industrial Lights and Magic, who was just down the road, and lent them, and they lent them their recording studio. And when he brought out photos and props to be used in the film, Diane started to enthusiastically tell stories about them and about her childhood at Christmas. And it was so good that she was used as the film's narrator. So I would say, you know, if the if the the museum is open again during Christmas time, the Christmas season. Uh, you know, it's definitely take in seeing um, this holiday film, and they always pair it with another, you know, um, Disney Christmas film. Yeah, I've read about it for years. Oh. Want to see it one day? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wish they would release it the way they did um, Walt. You know, the man behind the myth. Mm-hmm. It would be mm-hmm. so nice if they released that on DVD or Blu-ray. 
Now, when Don was at the Walt Disney Studio, he said it was tumultuous. Uh, the older animators who worked with Walt were retiring, and they were training the new animators. But the films being worked on at the time, he said, weren't really that great. But the young animators were inspired to make their own Pinocchio. Okay, so um, he said the ballroom scene in Beauty and the Beast is so iconic because the fantasy of the um, the ballroom, the dress, the tuxedo. He said in, in animation, dancing is how characters show commitment to their relationship. Plus, there's this beautiful ballad sung by Mrs. Potts, and, and all the household goods are cheering them on, and it all combines to inspire us to cheer them on. So he's, uh, he was asked, what is his favorite Disney film? He said it's 101 Dalmatians. He said it's a mid-century um, jewel of design, thanks to Ken Anderson and, and William Paragoy. So isn't that interesting? I thought I just thought what an interesting choice. So, and originally, yeah, um, oh, go ahead. Is, yeah, I think I, I just rewatched One Hundred and One Dalmatians. I want to say about two weeks ago, and it captivated me. And it it's only been probably three or four years since the last time I watched it. But I don't I don't know what it was about it, but it like. My appreciation for it just grew really, really, really uh, mm-hmm. more than I ever expected. So I, I can I can see it. It definitely it's not it's not in my like my top three or anything, but it's I, I think it's actually it's gaining a lot of traction on my list of favorites. Mm-hmm. I think it's a wonderful film. I mean, you think about, you know, they were using the new Xerox technology, and mm-hmm. it was never one of Walt's because, you know, he didn't like the black line, you know, being so prominent around the characters. Yep. But in order to save animation, they had to cut costs, and they had to go to, you know, this form of animation. And, um, but yeah, I I love the film. And, oh, and Cruella, what a wonderful, wonderful villain she is. I hope they... Aren't they making a film called Cruella? Yeah, with oh. uh, Emma Stone. Oh, they're going to ruin. They're going to ruin it, uh, just like they did Maleficent. I don't know. She's a great actress, though, so that's the one thing that yeah, I... Yeah, well, it's all about the story. It is, it is, but the I will not accept... I, I love a lot of Angelina Jolie movies, but... Uh, she she peaked into her like fifth or sixth movie, and then she's just been she's been uh, riding her name ever since then. And I know that's going to be unpopular for some <laughs> people, but I don't I don't accept her as a good actress in Maleficent. But Emma Stone is still at like she still hasn't made the best movies of her career. So I think she can take something like Cruella and take it to the next level. I don't know. I don't, I don't, you know, but a lot of times do we need to know their backstories? Absolutely not. (laughs) And I don't want it, and I don't want it to be, oh, she's really misunderstood. No. And, um, you know, and and this is the real story. And it's like the Descendants films that are on Disney Plus that my granddaughter, every time I talk to her, have you watched Descendants yet? And I don't even want to think about the fact that they procreated. Yeah. I mean, 
Anyway, listen. Anyway, we don't. Well, we don't huh? need them. But when I go downstairs tonight and I have a handful of cookies, I'm also going to tell myself I don't need these, but I'm still going to get them anyways. <laughs> yes, I know. Um. Anyway, well, speaking of Maleficent, originally Don Hahn went to Tim Burton to direct Maleficent, but um, and the key was always Angelique Jolie. Now, the original film was over two hours, and the first thirty minutes told her backstory, her and her childhood, but with the test audience. They were ignoring the film, basically, until Angelique Jolie showed up 30 minutes into the film. So they learned that's why the audience paid their $15, was to see her. And so they cut the first 30 minutes. Watch, that was probably, for me, the most interesting part of it. But anyway, but I just said I don't want to know their backstories. Anyway, but anyway, so... um. So he currently is the executive producer on the live-action remake of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. He is on the fringes of the film, and he is helping those um, who are working on it um, connect and tell the story for today's audience. That phrase always makes me nervous. But um, I hope they can combine it and I've talked about this before, I hope they can somehow mirror it or marry it to the stage production, which I thought was brilliant. And I talked about that a couple years ago when I saw it here locally. And because that's magnificent. It's a lovely combination of the film and the book. It does not have a happy ending. And so it has the book's ending. And if it was more like that, I think I would enjoy, I'll enjoy this read this this mm-hmm. version mm-hmm. of Hunchback of Notre Dame so because I do like that animated film they took some um, risks Absolutely. with that film yeah. yeah so there you go that's what I learned from these happily ever after hours events at the Walt Disney Family Museum now let's see what we learn from this week in Disney history. Okay, Craig. Well, here we are. We are in the week of July 12th. So let's see what's going on this week. Okay, on July 12th, Star Tours, one of your favorite attractions, sponsored by Panasonic, opens at Tokyo Disneyland on July 12th, 1989. With the opening of this Star Tours attraction, how many Star Tours attractions are now open at Disney theme parks around the world as of this date? I don't think it opened in Hollywood Studios until 1990, so this would be the second one? That is absolutely correct. This is the second Star Tours attraction. The first opened at Disneyland in 1987. Okay. July 13th, Walt and Lillian Disney celebrate their 30th wedding anniversary at the not-yet-opened Disneyland on July 13th, 1955. What was the name of this party that was printed on the invitations? I have no idea. (laughs) 
Oh, okay. Lillian Disney invited guests to a Tempest Fugit celebration at six o'clock in the evening. So, and as the guests arrive, they're transported down Main Street into Frontierland via horse-drawn surreys. From there, everyone takes a ride around the rivers of America aboard the Mark Twain Riverboat whilst sipping mint juleps. Oh, doesn't that just sound mm-hmm. lovely? Although they are already engaged, Roy E. Disney, Walt's nephew, presents a ring to his fiancée, Patty. I certainly hope they asked, uh, he asked permission from Walt and Lillian first, not to rain on their parade. Um, afterward, guests head to the Golden Horseshoe Saloon for dinner and the very first, although unofficial, performance of a show called The Golden Horseshoe Review, created by Wally Bogue, the original Pecos Bill. And, of course, this record-breaking stage show will play an amazing 47,250 performances through 1986. Well, you can ask me that question next year, and I will probably still not remember the answer. So, I'll try, though. <laughs> no, I'll probably ask you, how many performances did um, <laughs> did the Golden Horseshoe Review play? Anyway, a Tempest Fugit. Celebration. Very clever. Okay. On July 14th, July 14th, 1975, the Walt Disney Company announced plans for their next project. What was the project? Can you give me a hint? Um, it's in Florida. 75, you said? Yes. Hmm. I'm going to say Epcot Center. That. That's absolutely correct. The experimental prototype community of tomorrow, except it was Epcot, because at yeah. that time it was still the city that was going to be built. Of course. They were shamed into it <laughs> <laughs> by the media, by the media and by the state government who said, um, you know, we, we gave you all these little permissions with the understanding there was going to be a city of the future here. Yeah, well, the joke was on them. Yeah. Uh, okay, July 15th. On July 15th, 1975, construction begins on a Disneyland attraction. Twelve years in the planning, the idea for this Anaheim attraction originated in the mid-1960s during Walt Disney's lifetime as a way to energize the aging land in which this attraction is being built. What is the name of the attraction? It's a guess, but based on the 75 timeline, I'm assuming it's going to be Space Mountain opening in uh, 77. That is correct. Yep. It began on Disneyland Space Mountain, which Walt had originally conceived back in the 60s, but the technology just wasn't there. Um, So the project was shelved until after Space Mountain at Walt Disney World was constructed. 1,000 tons of steel will be used in the construction of the Disneyland version. Disneyland Space Mountain, a more compact, longer, single-track version than the one at Walt Disney World, will open, as you said, Craig, in May 1977. July 16th, the second voice of Figment... The mascot of the Imagination Pavilion at Epcot was born on July 16, 1946, in Burbank, California. What is his name? 
um, I I believe I know the answer to this only because I believe it's a tie-in to something we've already talked about in Mm -hmm. uh, this episode. It's Dave Goltz. It is, absolutely. And you know, the funny thing is, it didn't get brought up Mm -hmm. during that talk. And I thought, is nobody going to bring up Figment? But yes, working with Hence... Go ahead. I, I don't know if a lot of people actually are, are really tuned in to, to him as Figment because it's not as it's not as cut and dry as a lot of his other characters. So I think it's like if you know about mm-hmm. it, then you know about it. But, uh, you know, it's I, I think that Muppet fans are Muppet obsessed, but not necessarily Disney obsessed. So that's just mm-hmm. my take. Now, I'm sure you're correct. Yeah, well, working with Henson Associates as a part-time puppet builder starting in 1973, um, Goltz went on to become a full-fledged Muppeteer and, and, as we talked about, the voices of Gonzo and Bunsen Honeydew. His Disney credits include Studio DC Almost Live and Disney Extreme Digital. Okay, um, on July 17th, well, that's a big day out here in California. Nothing happened. Uh, Disneyland Cell... <laughs> Disneyland celebrates its 15th birthday along with 130 of the park's original cast members on July 17, 1970. How will these cast members now be referred as? I am not sure of this. Well, it's the club. Club 55. For I don't 1955. Think I've ever heard that. Yeah, yeah, isn't that cool? It is. I like that. Yeah. Okay, and finally, July 18th. Which Critter Country attraction officially opens to the public in Disneyland on July 18th, 1980? Oh, man, 1980. What was happening then? I'm not. What? was happening in 1980 a critter country all kinds of stuff well I <laughs> I'm not because it wasn't country bears somewhere in the late 70s mm-hmm. and then you know what I think did you mean 1989 <laughs> I think that's what I meant as I'm looking at this. I'm thinking, wait, 1980. If it was 1989, it, it was Song of the uh, it was yeah. not Song of the South, Splash Mountain. Yeah. Jeez, uh, the conversation. You're right. We that was tonight. my. Yeah, that's right. That was my mistake. Sorry. Okay. I don't. I hit the zero. You're right. It's July 18th, 1989. I'm thinking that because wait, because that was right after our <laughs> our wedding, and I remember we went to another wedding. Then Splash Mountain was new. I was and just, I caught a cold on it. Yeah, and I was just sitting here saying, like, <laughs> what attraction came in 1980 yeah. that's no yeah. longer there that I don't know about? No, no, you're right. You're right. Yeah, it's Splash Mountain. Sorry about that. And, of course, this attraction prevents, presents scenes taken from the animated segments of the 1946 feature film Song of the South. So, of course, I had to get that in there when I saw that date. Since we, I knew we were going to talk about it. Yeah, very good. You did really well this week. Not too bad.
was fun sharing uh, uh, these virtual experiences with all of you from the Walt Disney Family Museum. That is a very creative way for them to keep members and the public um, engaged, mm-hmm. you know, during this time. And uh, so please let us know if you enjoyed hearing about these virtual experiences. And if you did, you know, we'll continue to share them from time to time. If you'd like to learn more about the Walt Disney Family Museum, their new mobile app and their virtual experiences, which they now have a new virtual tour of the museum on their site, you can visit their website at you know WaltDisney.org, and Craig will have a link to their site in our show notes. So, Craig, until next time, um, where can our listeners connect with you? Oh, you can find me on the random shows that I'm on, like the Walt Disney World Edition, Universal Edition, Best and Worst of Walt Disney World, and then always on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Teleclaster. What about you, Michael? Yeah. Oh, and what what I have to ask, what prompted you to change your Twitter name? Oh, uh... (laughs) It was a, uh, yeah, so on my my Twitter name for the longest time was Craig Williams Kills Magic, that I, it's been Mm -hmm. so long that I don't remember why I made it that. I mean, I, obviously I was. uh, Pete, Pete always said that, I remember, on on our Walt Disney World show. I was irritated about something, so I know I I just changed it to that, but then (laughs) this kind of uh, came about as, as a joke that. Uh, one of uh, one of my very close friends that she's been only on one uh, one Walt Disney World episode that we did on Galaxy's Edge, uh, but I, I see her multiple times a year and have just we've we've grown to be extremely close. And uh, her her name's Carly Weisel, and she writes for uh, she writes for a slew of magazines, national media, travel and leisure, Eater, a lot of stuff like that, and. She's been kind of like back and forth on the fence about about coming to Walt Disney World and because of its reopening, but COVID cases rising. And so I just I, I made a joke with her that I was like, well, I can always pull out my fake ID where it says in the name of Carl Y. E. Vizel that I, I just randomly had laying around. I can I can pull out that ID and and take her place for anything that they might have planned, especially for her, is a joke. And then, like most things, it escalated, and so I I changed my name to that temporarily in quotes. And then I, I told her I would stop using that as my name, so that's why I added the formerly onto it. So that way, there's oh, no okay. confusion. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I just thought it was funny. Okay, well, you can send me messages at Michael at WDWinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling. The, the one with the connecting as well banner is the best one. Unless you, um, on my other page, you know, I think I'm starting to post photos of flowers. I mean, from my garden, you know, if you're interested in that. Um, Instagram, I'm Michael Bowling, the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at ConnectingWalt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig always includes in our show notes or at DisneyUnplugged.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. 
So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy. 